0: Well, good morning. morning. It certainly is a joy to be here this morning. Thank you for this privilege and this nice introduction. We're going to be in Psalm 46 this morning. I believe you have the outline there in front of you in the bulletin if you have that. Follow along with me as, as I read this. Psalm 46. For the choir director. A psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, The holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Bow with me in prayer for a moment. Father, it is a blessing to come before You and to present Your Word to Your people. Lord, I pray that You would bless our morning of worship, that we would be here with open arms, open hearts to Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would help me to speak with clarity. May we respond in faithful worship as we seek to understand your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but this is some of the most tumultuous times I've ever seen in our nation. There's a lot of craziness going on out there. There's a lot of division in our country. There's a lot of hatred spewing from both sides of the political aisle. And Uh, Even as Philip was reading this morning, there's a lot of hatred being poured out against evangelicals, Orthodox Christianity. Well, a little bit of encouragement on that, as I was thinking about the article he was reading, is just a small statement in there caught my mind from that pastor. What evangelicals are spewing is a putrid stench. A little bit of encouragement. If the culture, the unbelieving culture around you thinks what you are saying about Christ is a putrid stench, join with Paul in praise and adoration saying, praise God because the gospel is to the unbeliever a putrid stench. 2 Corinthians 2.16, preaching Christ will have that effect on an unbelieving culture. So understand, the culture will hate us, always. But that is a joy and an encouragement, because that means we are proclaiming the truth. That's in a side note that was just for free this morning. as we look at psalm forty six I want you to think about our culture and its divisions. Um, I want to explain a little bit of where I think this psalm was written in israel's history. I think it was written during the uh, the time of Hezekiah's reign. Let me explain a little bit. Uh, 2 Kings 18, the Assyrians are um, the most powerful nation in the Middle East at that point, the ancient Near East at that point in Israel's history. Israel survived three kings with the United Kingdom. The fourth king split the nation, and so the nation has been split with the ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. Not a whole, not, not a lot unlike our culture today, there's right and left split politically speaking there's even splits between uh, evangelical right and evangelical left i guess would be an accurate term these days even there are friends that i've had from masters years ago that i have watched uh, jump on the bandwagon of our culture and and dive full force into the culture's teaching on on the left and pro-choice it it's been a sad picture of of where our culture is headed but as we look forward to the incarnation we can still have joy because our our hope is not based on our friends it's not based on our school friends or our family or 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 what they believe it's based on what the word of god says and never changes And so when we're looking at the the culture surrounding what happened in Israel during Hezekiah's reign, we're looking at a divided nation, not unlike our own. You see 10 tribes in the north. There was Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, and Manasseh, all to the north of Israel. All to the north, and they were called Israel. Judah to the south had just the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Just a small portion of land, and there was Jerusalem. The northern tribes had zero zero good kings. Some of them were still used by God to deliver the gospel and to penetrate the darkness of the surrounding nations and God still was pursuing them in love. But ultimately they all ended badly. All the all the tribes of the north were eventually carried off into exile by the Assyrians. And that's where we see Hezekiah's time come into play. Hezekiah, king of the, king of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they've had a, a turbulent history with the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has finally been uh, taken into exile as a divine judgment from God on them for their disobedience and their rebellion against his law and his word. And in the south, Hezekiah is in a long line of kings, some good and some bad, some beginning good and ending bad, some beginning bad and ending really good. But they're all moving the train of judgment forward in Israel's history toward an abyss where eventually that train will fall off the cliff and the Babylonians will come and remove Judah from the land of promise. But at this time in Israel's history, under the reign of Hezekiah, You can read through 2 Kings 18 and and see all the faithful things that Hezekiah did. And there's a statement of his reign in there that says that there was no king that came before him or after him who was as good as he was. There was not a king who followed after the law of God as Hezekiah did. And so Hezekiah was a faithful king. He was a good king. He had his faults. He was a sinner. He's a human. But in the midst of this, Assyria has come in and invaded the north, taken the northern ten tribes hostage, exiled them, and we don't know where they are. Even today, we don't know where they've been spread out to. They wiped them off the map in judgment by God. And now, the king of Assyria, King Sennacherib, has marched up to the city gates of Jerusalem and is going to besiege the city of God. And if you read through 2 Kings 18, in verses 9 through 12, Assyria comes on, the, on, on this feudal scene between the north and the south, takes the northern ten tribes captive, and that's recorded in 2 Kings 18, 9 through 12, and that was around 720 BC. And then in verses 13 and 14, Sennacherib comes up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and then he sends his generals and an army to lay siege to Jerusalem and demand tribute from Hezekiah. And at this point, in 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah wisdom of Isaiah. He says, this is the man of God in my kingdom. I need to find out from him what we need to do at this point. Do we bow before a tyrant? Do we bow before this, this foreign king because other kings in the past have done so and been punished by God for it, for submitting to a foreign power? Or do I risk the lives of this nation of God's nation in a war against a far superior foe. And so he goes to Isaiah and he prays for deliverance from Assyria in this siege. And in 2 Kings 19, 20-34, the writer of the Kings writes that the Lord gives hope to Jerusalem by pronouncing a condemnation on the arrogance of Assyria, and particularly the king of Assyria. You see, Sennacherib and his generals... Mocked God to his face at the city gates of Jerusalem. If you read through that account multiple times through the account, and we'll read it in just a moment. the messengers from the king of Assyria mock God. They make him out to be just like any of the other gods of the nations around Israel, around Judah. So <laughs> these gods haven't been able to stop us from taking over there their kingdoms putting our own people in their place, how can Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, stop us? And then Second Kings 19, 35-37. It's just an amazing, amazing passage where overnight, because of the faithfulness of Hezekiah to follow in obedience, in seeking out the counsel of the Lord and the strength and the comfort from the Lord in a situation like this, Yahweh himself steps in and wipes out the Assyrian army doesn't just send them home, doesn't just give them a bad message and they just kind of walk away. He literally steps in and fights the battle in the middle of the night for the people of Israel and wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. And the Israelites wake up the next morning and there is just a battlefield that they never laid foot on. We have a good God. Now, you may have seen the message title on on the bulletin, God With Us. It is a Christmas message. I don't know how many people have heard a Christmas message about a God who lays desolations to his enemies. But the baby in the manger is that God. We're going to look at that in Psalm 46 this morning. In the context of Psalm 46, I believe that's when the Assyrians came in. In the context of a superior invading force, the psalmist lifts his voice to encourage and give confidence to the people of God by presenting three beautiful motifs that unveil God's powerful presence amongst and for his people. The first one is that God is a strong refuge in the storm in verses one through three. The second motif is a that God is the superior aid in the siege in verses four through seven. And the third motif is that God is the sovereign victor in the war in verses eight through 11. This psalm is a beautiful depiction and description of God's superiority over all of creation, not just the nations of the earth, not just political situations, but all of creation, as you can see in that first stanza. And in light of what I believe the context to be in Second Kings 18, over all false gods, His essential superiority over the created order is presented in beautiful detail in this psalm. Take a look with me real quick at Second Kings 18. Keep a thumb there in, in Psalm 46. But listen as I read these verses. That when the, when the Assyrians were standing before the walls of besieged Jerusalem, they taunted the Israelites and their king Hezekiah, and thus by extension God. And they, they taunted Israel saying this, verse 19. Then Rabshakeh, that is the general or commander of the Assyrian army, said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Look at verse 22. If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? And in verse 24. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Jump down to verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me, and each... Eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephar of and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Those are some bold words. Those are some very bold words. And coming from a superior foe like the Assyrians, the, the dominating power in the world at that time, in that area of the world, that's a, that's a scary confidence. That someone has that kind of confidence is, and you're standing on the walls of Jerusalem as you're, you're facing this 180,000 man army, realizing our city can't stand against a foe like that. How can we fight them in battle? And then they have that message from their king to deliver to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. That, that, that's scary. I don't know about you, but being in, in a situation like that, my knees would be knocking. That, that's a fearful thought. A siege at that time was was scary because oftentimes there would be people from all the, the towns and countries around swarming to a fortress city like Jerusalem. And so the food stores would not be prepared. And if this siege went on indefinitely, there are recordings of times in Israel's history when they were under siege and cannibalism took place because they ran out of food. The Assyrians used scare tactics like this and then even terror tactics in the way that they would torture their victims so that all the world that they conquered and dominated would live in abject fear of them. And this is what the Israelites knew and heard of the Assyrians as they marched up to the gates of Jerusalem. The psalmist And Psalm Psalm 46 then takes up the case of God. For two reasons he does this. First is for the reassurance of the saints in the city. And the second is as a warning to the enemies at the gate. The first motif which the psalmist uses to unveil God's powerful presence amongst and for his people is the strong refuge in the storm. Look there at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. That is a beautiful verse, is it not? It's so comforting to our souls just from the standpoint of knowing the Word of God as true. But let's dive just a little bit deeper. What does it mean that God is a refuge and a strength? The psalmist will flesh this out even further in the coming verses, but a refuge is anything that that someone will run to in times of trouble. A refuge is anything that, that will protect somebody. It, it, it pictures that, that idea of God as a divine protector. And the word strength there is really more of a modifier for refuge. And so it's not just God is this, this shelter in place on a mountaintop or, or a shelter like a cave in the mountains, but he is this strong, fortified refuge standing there on a hilltop ready to defend and fend off and protect his inhabitants. Look at the next line. This is one of my favorite lines in the, whole, in the whole chapter, in the whole psalm. A very present help in trouble. Now, it poses a question. How can you be more present than present? I mean, I have a stack of paper here on the pulpit. I have a Bible here. I don't, how much more present to me can these objects be to me? There's an emphatic emphasis here on the presence of God. When God said in Genesis 1 that everything he created was very good, that same construction is used here for the presence of God. He is very present. He is exceptionally present. He has been found exceptionally or exceedingly. I don't know how much better to explain it than that because English can't convey a presence more present than present. But it, it, it's beautiful, it's emphatic. You don't even have to turn around before knowing and understanding that God is with you. That Emmanuel exists beside you. That that strong refuge is here. And that as believers, we have that access constantly. What is the psalmist's response? Read there in verse two. Therefore, because of this because of verse 1 we will not fear there's another fun emphatic statement that construction there literally means we will never fear it's an emphatic use of that ne- that negative particle not when you think of the 10 commandments and there's that negative command do not murder it's very emphatic it's very very definite never do this do not murder you shall not murder It's the same kind of construction here. We will not fear. God is our refuge. God is our strength. Fear is not an option. This is an emphatic declaration of confidence that results in a confident taunting later in verse 3. The psalmist explains this even further because god is our refuge we will not fear and he gives some examples even if the earth changes even when the mountains fall when the world all around us is shaking and being stirred up and the mountains are crashing down around us we will not fear Anyone ever been in an earthquake? I mean, it's Florida, so I don't know. Hurricanes coming up. My wife's over here. Going, yeah, I've been in an earthquake. We had a pastor in California who, during the 1994 Northridge earthquake, was in the middle of a, a, a mobile guard shack at the master's college. It's little, about five feet wide by 10 feet long, and not stuck into the ground. And when that earthquake hit, he, he said for about the next however long, it felt like three hours for him, he didn't know what was going on. He was just scrambling to try and get out of the shack. And when he finally managed to get out of the shack, he clung for dear life to the, to the base of a pine tree, just hoping everything would stop for what felt like two hours. He said it was the scariest situation he's ever been in because the world would literally drop out from underneath him and then all of a sudden slam back into him. <laughs> That's what this psalmist is picturing. Even when the earth changes or shakes, and even though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. And look at verse 3. Though its waters roar in foam, speaking of the sea, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. That's a picture of a storm in water. Floridians understand, even if they don't understand an earthquake, you understand what what it is to be in the middle of a storm with the winds blowing and the waves crashing and the rivers rising and flooding. I wasn't going to sit through Irma. That was my first year here in Florida, so I left. I ran I ran away. I went to I went to Richmond. Spent my time up in Richmond. Got a little bit of rain from from Irma up there. That was about it. I was afraid to be here for Irma. And I've heard tales of what hurricanes do to beaches and what they do to towns, the flooding that is caused by all of that. It's not something pleasant that I would like to experience. Some of you are sitting there laughing in your hearts at me because you've been through so many and you probably stood out on your front porch shaking your fist at the wind. Good Floridians. The psalmist is picturing this, this massive upsurge, this, this swelling storm where the sea is pictured as, as, as this monster getting ready to destroy the people of God. There are some words here that are repeated throughout the the rest of the psalm as well. In verse verse 2, the mountains falling is pictured again of kingdoms in verse 6. And the turbulent waters roaring in verse 3 is also used of the raging of the nations that caused the kingdoms to fall in verse 6. What I think the psalmist is doing here, he's using a particular Particular verbal form that is taunting the waves. He's just said in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then in verse 2, therefore I will not fear. We will not fear. Emphatic. In this verbal form in verse 3, I believe he is saying, let the waters roar. Let them foam. Let the mountains quake at its swelling pride. I have confidence. I'm not going to fear God is my refuge. There's a lot that could be said about the shaking of the mountains, but you don't have any mountains in Florida. That was a joke. You're allowed to laugh at me. Sorry. In verse 3, the mountains are shaking. It's a convulsion or a shaking that that literally is is dislodging the mountains from their place and causing them to totter. It's like the psalmist is literally taunting the earth and taunting the mountains and taunting the storm to dislodge everything that would be considered in our time and place the foundations of the earth. And I still am not going to be afraid of it. It's a picture of chaos reigning across the created order. The picture of the very foundations of creation falling apart. It's a catastrophic event. It's apocalyptic in nature. But the psalmist has already given his reassurance. We have a refuge in the storm. It's not a physical refuge that can be buffeted by the sea or eventually torn down after after decades or millennia. It's not a refuge that can be crushed by falling mountains. It's not a refuge made by hand. It is a refuge that created the world. It is a refuge who is the one who made all things. This refuge is the one who created it all. And as our spiritual strong refuge, God is entirely. Unaffected by the physical catastrophes that take place in the earth. He is sovereign and in control over them. Therefore, we will not fear. He is more present than present. Therefore, we will not fear. God is stronger than the mountains, He is stronger than the seas. And in the middle of the storm, we have this comfort, this refuge. And speaking in light of the Incarnation, remember how in Matthew 8, Jesus, wearied by ministry, is sleeping in the bottom of a boat and a storm comes on the disciples in the Sea of Galilee. And they wake Him up in fear and He says, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Afraid you of little faith. And he stands up, his body's exhausted, and still, with a word, calms the storm. God is entirely sovereign over any natural disaster that can happen. He is the only refuge in a storm. And look at that verse there. At the end of the verse, selah, that little word. There's a lot of meaning packed into that little word, but we don't know what it is. Most people take it as, eh, it's just a word, skip over it. Some people in scripture readings don't even read it. I think it's important. It's putting an emphatic point at the end of what the psalmist is trying to say in those first couple verses. God is our refuge. Pause and reflect on that. There's a storm but God is our refuge. We will not fear. Pause and reflect on that. A lot of people think of it as just a a musical interlude or or even a pause. It's a perfect time in a psalm to pause and say, what have I just heard? Reflect on this. Meditate on what I've just heard. Be still my soul and realize the God I serve. Pause. Reflect. Reflect meditate do you fear the coming storm why do you have a habit of fleeing to god for a refuge or something else do you live with the confidence that god is a spiritual refuge stronger than any physical disaster catastrophe or spiritual danger in light of these first three verses why God is a very present help, a strong refuge. He will not allow His people to suffer and fall. The second motif which the psalmist uses to unveil God's powerful presence amongst and for His people is the superior aid in the siege. God has promised our protection and provision. Look at this next stanza in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God's presence brings peace, and that is here pictured as a river flowing into a besieged city, surrounded by a nation that wants its destruction In Jerusalem, there is one natural spring. And when Hezekiah heard that the Assyrians were coming to wipe out Jerusalem, to lay siege to the city, he blocked that spring up. Because water is an important resource, more important than anything else. You can go for weeks without food, but you can only go for a few days without the water. And so in a siege, water is the thing that brings the most comfort and rest and refreshment. And so, have you ever heard of Hezekiah's tunnel? Hezekiah dug a tunnel 1,500 feet long through a mountain from the head of that spring through a mountain to what we know now as the Pool of Siloam. And remembering into the Gospels is where Jesus sent the blind man to wash the mud from his eyes so he could receive his sight again. It's an important place important place for Jerusalem. It's used throughout the Psalms and it's used in Isaiah 8 as an allusion, as as a source of joy and peace for the people of Jerusalem. But they rejected it in Isaiah 8. Here in Psalm 46, it's a stream that makes glad the city of God. It brings joy. It brings refreshment and peace. It pictures the peace and the aid of God flowing into his city to strengthen and refresh the inhabitants. It pictures the presence and refreshment coming from God. And looking even further ahead into the into the book of revelation in chapter 22 verses 1 and 2 we see that there is a river of life flowing from the throne of of god and that's what this pictures it's it's a river of life flowing from the presence of god himself that brings refreshment it also pictures god's care as a shepherd for his people like the quiet waters in psalm 23 And it pictures the life-giving blessings of the Word of God from Psalm 1. Ultimately, it pictures the undeserved grace of God. John Calvin remarked on the purpose of, of this metaphor, being so that the faithful might learn that without any aid from the world, the grace of God alone was sufficient for them. Therefore, though the help of God may but trickle to us, as it were, in slender streams, we should enjoy a deeper tranquility than if all the world, all the power of the world, were heaped up all at once for our help. So that when the king of Assyria mocked God and taunted Hezekiah, saying, Why will you believe and trust in Yahweh? Hezekiah can respond with, because he is here. He's not an idol that needs a base and nails and screws into the ground to stand firm. He, he, he doesn't have those characteristics. He's not an idol like those in, in the nations around. He's not a, a lowercase g god like those of the nations around. He speaks, he is present. More present than present. He is our refuge. More than that, He is an intimate refuge. And the sufficiency of His grace is such that outside of it, there is no lasting or comparable peace or tranquility for the troubled soul. And the weary spiritual traveler finds rest, tranquility, nourishment, and refreshment in the grace and promises of God. Notice another comforting statement in verse 4. The holy dwelling places of the Most High. There is the presence of God again. The city of God, Jerusalem, is named as His dwelling place. It is the place that He has taken up residence. Then in verse 5, even more explicit, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. And that word, Therefore moved is the same word again from verse 2 and 3 for the mountains shaking and falling into the heart of the sea. And so there's a contrast between the mountains, the very foundations of the earth, the very foundations of the created order in the ancient Near Eastern mindset being the mountains. There's a contrast of those crumbling and falling apart there in verse 2 and 3. But the city of God, because of His presence, will not fall. We have an amazing God, don't we? Because God is in the midst of His people, because He is always present with them, they will not fall. God is the great support for His people. So they will not fall. He will uphold them. Put yourself back in that besieged city again, up on the wall, looking out over a field of Assyrians encamped and ready to just sit there and wait while you run out of food. Waiting for you to give up hope and either run out and be killed by the Assyrians or for the Assyrians to finally batter their way through the wall or build a siege ramp up and, and take the city. And as you're dwelling on that, the words of the psalmist then in verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. That is an encouraging phrase. I love it. And I'm a Lord of the Rings geek, so Helm's Deep coming your way. Picture the defenders at Helm's Deep. They've gathered all the people of Rohan into the caves, trying to give them time. They're outnumbered. The walls have been breached, and they're all just stuck they're just stuck in the citadel waiting for the orcs and the uruk to finally break through that door and come in and slaughter everybody. And Aragorn says, well, let's ride out and meet them. And then he remembers what Gandalf told him. What did Gandalf tell him? At first light on the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. And when they ride out and they're all out there fighting amongst the horde of orcs and the uruk the sun comes up over the hill and there is Gandalf on his white horse shining with the sun behind him and charging in to save the day. I love that picture. It's a perfect picture of what the psalmist is picturing here. God will win at the dawn. We have this confidence. And in order to shore that up even further, the psalmist in verse 6 contrasts the noise or, or, or the reactions of the nations and, and the action of God. Look there at verse 6. The nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. In the same terms used in verse 3 to describe the catastrophic and chaotic state of the seas, the psalmist now describes the state of the nations of the world. Whether in response to what the psalmist is saying or the reality of God as a refuge for his people, whatever it may be, think of the nations roaring and rioting. There's there's just such a rage-filled response in them. They're not getting what they want. They, they want to make something in their own image. Think of the effect that the riots in the last few months and in some of our major cities have had on, our, on the cultural mindset. Many of the friends that I've had have been affected by that. Their, their mindsets have shifted. Their, their entire worldviews that they had solidified in college at masters had, has, has been torn down The rage and the din and confusion of of countries' revolutions and the coups from many countries throughout history. Think of it in those terms. When nations roar, what happens? Kingdoms fall. When nations rise up against their government, kingdoms fall. How much faith do you put in our government? How much faith do you put in in our culture and in our country? There will be a day when the United States will be no more. Whether it's tomorrow or whether it's January 21st of 2021, it doesn't matter. There will be a day when America will be considered amongst, listed amongst the nations that have fallen to the horde of mob rule. But we have joy. Why? Because our, our refuge is the one who raises his voice and the earth melts as a response. He is our refuge. He is the one who fights on our behalf and the one who protects us. While the nations roar, while they are consumed in the chaos of their catastrophes, and while they bring kingdoms to their knees, God merely lifts his voice, makes a statement, whispers, and he can bring the world to. To be unmade. That is the power of our God. That is the power of the baby. That is the power of the God who has made Himself available to us. We have the hope of His powerful protection. So verse 7, He is our hope. Who is our God? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Literally, Yahweh of armies is with us. This is a statement to the foes of Israel. This is a statement to the enemies of God. Yahweh is the one before whom all the armies and the powers of both heaven and earth will bow in subjection. He is the sovereign king of all. And then that second line, God of Jacob. That God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is the personal, intimate, covenant God This is our God. We are reminded here of the double prop on which our faith rests. The infinite power whereby God can subdue the universe to Himself and the fatherly love which He has revealed in His Word. And where these two props are joined together, our faith may trample on all enemies. Selah. Pause, reflect, meditate on that. Do you trust God to be your aid? Do you have hope in His sovereignty? Do you find yourself anxious or fearful or worried about the future of our country? Are you plagued by the fears of what's going to happen in our government as a result of this election, whatever direction it goes? Have you turned to the one who is the living water, who is the source of peaceful rivers for our refreshment? Have you laid your life at the feet of the king? When troubles come, do you turn to God For help. Have you accepted the idea that he is the superior aid in a siege? And very quickly, the third motif which the psalmist uses to unveil God's powerful presence amongst and for his people is the sovereign victor in the war. Our protection is secure. It's assured And so in verse 8, the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. God will have the victory. And the psalmist here uses this double command. Come and behold. He's making an emphatic statement of you need to see this. You must see this. Come see what God has done. And no, I'm not talking about creation. I'm not talking about the salvific works that He's wrought for His people. Amazing works. What the psalmist is saying is, nations, you can roar, you can rage, you can do as you wish, and the kingdoms will fall. But the one who lifts His voice and melts the earth with it, look at what He can do. Look at what He has done. These are desolations. These are astonishing acts. These are the works of Yahweh. The psalmist here is speaking of the works that on the tame end cause astonishment. But on the extreme end of the spectrum bring a sense of abject horror at what has been done. Think of the plagues in Egypt. God wrought judgment on those who enslaved, subdued, and tortured his people. And the psalmist is saying, you better watch out. This is our God. The one who killed the firstborn from an entire generation of an entire nation is the one fighting on our behalf. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is all-powerful. You cannot escape His judgment and His justice. Look at verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. He brings peace. But how does He bring peace? How will He ultimately bring peace? peace it's not through treaties he breaks the implements of war he crushes the foe he brings peace by bringing justice on the wicked and notice what it what the psalmist says he makes wars to cease To what? The end of the earth. It's an all-encompassing statement saying that from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, there will be peace. But it's not going to come at some cutesy treaty cost. It will come at the cost of the wicked's demise. The entire world will be peaceful. And God will bring it. What the psalmist did not fully comprehend when he wrote this and what he pictures here by divine inspiration is what we understand more fully as the final battle where God rains fire down from heaven on the devil and his armies in Revelation 20. This is the final judgment of God pictured. As you celebrate the birth of our King, the birth of our God, remember who He is. He's not just a baby born to a virgin. He is the creator of the universe, the sovereign sustainer of His people, and the one who will bring justice on earth. God will always have the final victory, and He will always be victorious in His own way. Look at verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Why must justice be brought on the earth? Why? Because God is not yet exalted amongst all the earth. That command to cease striving is a command to just stop, cause to halt what has been going on. is just cease doing what you're doing. Stop. Listen. See what's going on. Understand what is happening. And then there's another command. No. These have dual purposes. For the people of God, this is a comfort to know that God causes peace to reign for His people. It's a comfort to know that God is a strong refuge for us. It's a comfort to know that God handles all things for His people. It's a comfort to know that God is present and working. A comfort to know that God provides for and protects His people both actively and passively. It's a comfort to know that God does not cease from working, but we must cease from our own striving, from striving for our own ends, for striving for our own protection. It's a comfort to know that God has all things under His control. But to to the enemies of God, this is a warning. Stop. Know what you're about to do. Know who you are mocking. Know who it is you are rejecting. Know who it is you're fighting against. To the enemies of God, it is a warning because He will bring peace. And they're not going to like it. It's not going to be peace that they want. It's a warning to the enemies of God because He, Yahweh, is the one protecting His people. And He is the one who brought their kingdom to existence. And He is the one who speaks and the entire world will melt. And then the psalmist gives the other command to know. This is that intimate Knowledge it is an intimate understanding of someone or something in proverbs 1 7 solomon writes that the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge and so the psalmist here is not merely giving a broad general command to understand something it's not just saying have a general understanding of who god is have an affirmation of, of what the Bible teaches about his character. It is, know him personally. Know him well. This is the same word used to describe marital intimacy. It's the same word used in marital relations to describe the sexual act. It is an intimate knowledge. It is not just, I know my wife's name. I know she exists. I acknowledge her. Who she is, it is I know her intimately. And the psalmist says, know God. Know who he is. And know this specifically. Know this specifically. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That is a divine promise that God will receive all the glory. And to the nations surrounding Israel, to the Assyrians, it is a warning. But to those who take refuge in God, it is a comfort to know that in Him, behind His strong arms, there is protection and peace. There is nothing And no one that can stand in the way of God receiving the glory that is due him. Seek refuge in him or be counted amongst those who fell trying to overthrow him and rebellion. And the psalmist again, rounding out the psalm, utters the refrain again, The Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Yahweh of armies is with us. The all-powerful God and creator of the universe is the one who fights for us. He is sovereign and He is our stronghold and He is our intimate Savior. This is our God. As you reflect on the child born to Mary. Reflect and know who He is. Yes, He is a wonderful Savior and King. But how does He do that? By protecting His people and fighting on their behalf in the war. Our God, Yahweh of armies, brings peace. Peace. Selah. Pause. Reflect. Meditate. As one commentator writes, What are all the fret and stir of armies and captains of armies and kings and kingdoms in His sight, who is the ruler and judge of all? Isaiah writes that the armies and the nations and the kingdoms of the earth are like dust on a scales or a drop in a bucket. Do you know God? Do you strive to save yourself? Or do you flee to Him for refuge? Have you given Him control of your life? Have you given the only sufficient and efficacious judge and ruler the rule of your life? Have you submitted to Him Have you ceased your striving after the things of this life, fighting for your own wants and desires? Have you submitted yourself to God's will? Have you sought refuge in the powerful presence and protection of God? If not, why not? If not, will you? There is nothing and there is no better protection from the storm there is no stronger refuge in the storm there is no more superior aid in a siege than god and there is no more sovereign a victor in the war than god Beloved, what are you holding on to in your lives that your heart is deceiving you into thinking will bring you peace and protection? And will you give it up for the superior satisfaction and peace that only God can bring? During this Christmas season, take time to meditate on the beauty and the power of an intimate, all-knowing and loving God who will receive the glory in the end and the one who fights on our behalf, the one who protects, and the one who is our refuge in all of life's distresses. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for the refuge that You are in our lives. Thank You for protecting Your people whom You have called out. Thank You, Lord, for sending Your Son as the incarnate blessing as the incarnate one it is an amazing an amazing thing to comprehend to think about the god of the universe becoming man lord imprint that into our minds this season as as we celebrate christmas and as we look ahead into the, the coming times in our culture, the times of difficulty, impress upon our minds the truth of Your Word that You and You alone are a sovereign protector and refuge for Your people. Lord, may we be obedient to give You the glory. May we be obedient in running to You for refuge in the storm. In seeking your help in the battle. Thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign victor in the war. May you be glorified as we go out this week. It's in your name I pray. Amen.